The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Joining us now is the president and the chief executive of Edison International, the $20 billion electric utility based in California, Pedro Pizarro. Pedro, thank you very much for being with us. Great being here. Um, you've spoken about what the roads in California are going to look like by 2030. I understand somewhere in the order of maybe 7 million electric vehicles. That includes automobiles as well as trucks. Where is the electricity going to come from in order to charge the batteries for those vehicles? Well, we view this as part of a broader perspective for how California gets its 40% greenhouse gas reductions by 2030. We see the electricity coming from a resource stack that will be 80% carbon-free. So that means a lot of renewables. Uh, we think that will require a lot of storage to be able to balance intermittency of renewables. But the key thing is that we view that as relying on a modern grid that's able to connect those resources, those sources that are clean, with uses like transportation and space and water heating that will help California achieve its goals in the lowest possible, uh, lowest possible cost. So can you give us just a sense of your role in this goal of reducing emissions in California by 40% by 2030? What's your, what's your role here? Sure. Uh, actually, several roles. Uh, it starts with having a strong and modern grid. So you know, our main business is running our wire system that provides power to 15 million residents across 50,000 square miles. That's one role. We have a role as a procurer of energy. We, we don't make very much of our own energy. We buy it from the market. And so as we let out contracts, we expect those contracts to go to an increasingly clean set of resources. Today, we our stack is about 30% renewables and 40% carbon-free. We see that, again, doubling to 80% carbon-free by 2030. We also play a role in contracts for storage, and we also own some storage ourselves. And so deploying storage, today we have commitments for around 500 megawatts uh, of storage. Uh, we believe that the state as a whole will need closer to 10,000 megawatts of storage by 2030. One big problem is that consumers just aren't buying electric vehicles that quickly, and they still well, love their SUVs. I mean, it's like yeah. you can't change people's taste. Yeah. Well, this is happening, though, and it's, it's uh, I think we're at the early part of the S-curve here, the growth curve. When you look about four or five years ago, I think in California, about 1% of vehicle, new vehicle sales had some sort of plug attached to it. Uh, last year was close to 5%. We have around 370,000 electric vehicles in the state right now. It's early days, but it's early days with a market that's growing. We're seeing more charging infrastructure deployed. That's another one of our roles, you know, ready the grid for that. And importantly, we see auto manufacturers 
gearing up for this. More and more announcements of electric vehicles, not just to serve California. I mean, we're, we play a leading role, but we're only one of a lot of leading roles out there, and China now has the largest leading role along with the EU. So this is a global, uh, a global initiative that's taking place here. And from a U.S. perspective, you know, I view support for electric vehicles as being critical to our economy and to helping us participate in that infrastructure play. Do you foresee Edison International purchasing uh, residential energy storage companies? Um, oh, we typically don't comment on M&A, but I'd say our main focus continues to be on actually investing in that core grid. So you never say it never about anything, but it's not our focus right now. Our focus has been on investing in the grid. We have purchased some storage for our own use tied to our grid as well. And then outside of the utility, we have Edison Energy, which provides services to large commercial and industrial customers. And there we're helping those customers uh, purchase their own storage as well. I'm wondering, you know, as you talk about California's plan to reduce emissions by 40% by 2030, I'm struck by President Trump's uh, approach to reducing emissions and that there actually has been a, uh, a pretty significant attempt to roll back emission standards from uh, former President Obama's era. How does this complicate your goal and how does this complicate sort of the overarching uh, sort of target of reducing emissions? I think the bottom line is that there is not that much impact that really? California will feel. There's some impact, but there's not that much impact in this sense. Um, the rollback of the clean power plant at EPA, well, when you look at how California was going to fulfill its part of that, California's doing that already, anyway. It's you know increasing the target for renewables to 50%, setting the law for the 40% greenhouse gas reduction. None of that is changing in this state. And I think that's similar in other states that are pursuing their own greenhouse gas reduction pathways. There are touch points, right? And uh, uh, one touch point is the uh, fact that EPA has allowed the you know uh, a waiver for California in terms of vehicle emission standards. You've seen you know commentary over the last week in the EPA at the federal level uh, talking about a potential rollback of that or you know changes to that. Uh, Mary Nichols, who's the chair of the Air Resources Board, I think is at this conference also, she was quoted you know, in the various papers this morning as talking about that and the fact that California may sue to protect its right to have its standard, but also acknowledging that, look, you know, folks will negotiate, they'll talk, and uh, ultimately I think you know, we'll get this resolved in large part because electric vehicles are such a big part of the strategies for the automakers, and that's an important infrastructure play that our economy should not miss. You mentioned how you're going to need, what, about 10 gigawatts of battery storage mm -hmm. by 2030 in order to meet all of these needs. Do you foresee any big changes in battery storage technology by then? Oh, absolutely. Um, with lithium-ion dominating the market today, we've already seen dramatic cost reductions. I think you know, battery cell costs went down by about two-thirds between 2010 and 2014. Continued improvements are expected as we move ahead, but there will be other chemistries too. One of the fun things I get to do outside of Edison is that I'm on the board of Argonne National Lab. Argonne has been the hub for the Department of Energy's uh, research on battery storage. And so they're pursuing a number of other chemistries there. And there's a lot of confidence, uh, you know, not only there, but across the market that we'll see more types of chemistry, more types of battery that will bring 
uh, greater capacities, uh, more usability, lower issues, and ultimately lower costs for consumers. Which companies are at the forefront of this? Because I think everyone thinks of Elon Musk as being sort of a secret uh, battery whiz, and that that's really where his power is going to come from. But are there other kind of people in the industry or companies that really have been uh, pioneers here? Yeah, well, look, there's a lot of focus across our economy and the worldwide economy, and you know, I don't want to go into a whole litany of you know, names of companies. We, we certainly have purchased Tesla batteries, but we've done work with a number of other companies, both on the manufacturing side for the battery cells, as well as folks who are deploying storage. And for example, companies that are contracting with end-use consumers, aggregating those batteries and then presenting that as a package to our utility so we can then procure the use for that. So you're seeing a lot of focus both in the U.S., in Asia, in Europe, um, across multiple folks investing. So you're not going to answer which companies. That was a very tactful way not to endorse tactful. any companies. Helping out, Lisa. That was very tactful. <laughs> well, good luck with your Thanks, uh, goal of reducing emissions uh, by 40% in, you know, 15 years. Less than 12 years. years. 12, 12 years. years. The, t- yeah. the clock is ticking. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank Petro you so much. Pizarro, President and Chief Executive Officer of Edison International, uh, which is based in California, but he is here at the Bloomberg Future of Energy Global Summit. He has a tall task and many roles played uh, with respect to this Californian goal. There's sort of a philosophical conundrum in investing today. On one hand, investment managers need to make money for their clients. On the other hand, there's a growing movement to feel good about where people are putting their money. Here to talk about uh, how one major organization is dealing with that is Anne Finucane, vice chairman of the uh, Bank of America organization, which we all know. Uh, So, Anne, thank you so much for being here. I want to start with that. Sort of, how do you make sure that you are getting good returns and investing responsibly for the bank while also supporting initiatives that you think uh, lead to a more sustainable sustainable future uh, from an energy perspective? Thanks, Lisa. So, it's, uh, it's evolved over time. That doesn't just begin on day one, as you know. A good idea becomes a viable idea when you can get the returns. So what we've been able to do is to approach uh, new products, create new products that are uh, similar to the products that um, our clients would have known from the past. So municipal bonds, green bonds. A green bond, you can underwrite a green bond or issue a green bond. The kind of return you're going to get on it is probably north of what you'd get on a municipal, but not much better. But if that's what you were going to invest in in the, in the first place, you can also get the return of uh, an environmental hit that you would not have been able to get otherwise. So you're talking about reducing greenhouse gas emissions, energy efficiency, uh, water storage, or whatever. Likewise, we've been able to do the same thing with tax equity, which actually came out of some of the work we did early on years ago with community development, but applying tax equity where you can, um, uh, through tax credits and investments, uh, make a better return than, say, the municipals, and so on and so on. So um, we've seen more recently an um, interest in uh, the private capital markets, and that's, that's where, you, of course, you're going to make bigger money. So when private equity gets involved and they are focused on the sustainable development goals and then they're looking to get their kinds of returns, that usually takes different tranches of uh, financing. It's not just one thing. 
But on a blended basis, you can get good return, you can de-risk, and you can do some good. Uh, just to mention that you're a native of Newton. And, I am. Um, you know, uh, Bloomberg Radio, uh, home uh, is 1061 Boston, Newburyport, and 1330 in Metro West and the South Shore. <laughs> so I want to give you the opportunity to maybe draw some uh, connections between the demand for technology of the future, Boston and the Boston area known for biotechnology, right? Uh, that no one really knew was going to exist in the future, but that public-private partnership and the money that came from the private sector is something that helped build it into a world-class industry. Do you think that this is what's happening now with these commitments to sustainable and renewable energy? I do. I think it, this is an evolution that seems to happen in many industries. I mean, you could say the same of uh, tech in Silicon Valley. You could say it of biotech in, in the Boston area. You could say it more generally in terms of... Um, uh, environmental efforts. You have to have the early money that's kind of um, uh, first loss money, if you will, and and the, the willingness to dig in. So in the early days, much of what we were doing environmentally was philanthropic. But there was clearly a business there. I mean, a, a very practical business is energy efficiency in the real estate space. What what developer doesn't want to be able to have uh, spend less money on energy use but if you can think about that up front rather than doing it on a retroactive basis, it's going to help. So it's, you know, first you walk, then you run, and then you start making money. I'm, I'm wondering, you know, when you were talking about the tax credits being somehow embedded into uh, some of these financial instruments to get people into sustainable investing, yeah. how much uh, does the lack of interest by the current presidential administration kind of impact sort of the, the sort of investing landscape here because there has been a pullback from underwriting sort of uh, nascent efforts to get the grid to be more sustainable. Well, the pullback is actually in the uh, tax reform. So um, I think we can w work our way through that. I think we've gotten sophisticated enough about that. On the other hand, the business community hasn't pulled back at all. We haven't, and I can't think of any big company that committed in 2015, December of 2015, to the uh, COP21, that's actually pulled back because for us, we see business. We also have um, an employee base that expects us to do that. And frankly, we have an investor base that expects us to do that. I can't tell you how many conversations we have, and I have these conversations. I meet with about 50 institutional investors a year, and uh, Three years ago, no one asked about ESG, and now everybody does. And and when I say ESG, they're mostly focused on E. So okay. how do you make sure that you're measuring the E uh, accurately? Because when you talk about green bonds, I know that some people have complained that there are a lot of arbitrary standards for what counts as green. Yeah. So how do, you, how do you evaluate that, and how do you judge? Well, it's getting less and less arbitrary to begin there. Uh, you need to have results, so you need to reduce something. So you need to reduce the greenhouse gas emissions or improve your water storage. So you have to have definable outcomes. The um, issue with green bonds is it takes a little more to do because you have to calibrate all of that. You have to have a report at the end of it. So I think that's really the complaint, not so much that it's not definable, but that it takes a little work to do, to do the work. Um, and I would say, so going back to the government, uh, 
regardless of what this administration is is saying, the reality is is that we're not living administration to administration. We're trying to look at this in the long term. We're talking about this to the end of this century and how much money is needed. And we're seeing opportunity. I mean, we committed $125 billion in 2013. We thought that we would make that goal in 2025. And five years in, we're well, uh, we're beyond uh, halfway mark, and and with momentum. So, the first few year was much slower than this past year. This past year, we did just like I think six billion dollars in um, green bonds alone. So underwriting them, underwriting them, and we're the number one underwriter of green bonds, number one on uh, tax equity. Um, financial firm and we're very focused on this i mean energy efficiency is probably first uh to my surprise wind is next then solar so catalytic finance initiative yeah all part of this just give yes. us the the lowdown on on what it is and and what you look for the future yeah i, I think we have to come up with a better name for that that's sort of a mouthful we're, but we're gonna have it, a, we're gonna have a contest after right Okay, but what it is is um, when there are projects that are harder to finance by one company or one, one client or one bank, it is a way of getting other financial institutions involved. So we made a billion-dollar commitment rather whether to de-risk or invest. It wouldn't either way. Uh, and uh, we've got seven other financial firms of different types and, and also nonprofits. And together... Uh, various tranches of financing have been able to uh, do a wind farm in the North Sea, solar panels, 30,000 homes in Spain, and conservation land in Africa. Thank you very much for Thank being you. with us. Anne Finucane is a vice chair of Bank of America. The countdown has begun from May 14th to 16th a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Nuclear fusion. We are going to be focusing on this now. We're not going to be talking about the sun. We're going to be talking about how perhaps we can create uh, fossil fuel-free energy in a cheap, efficient way here on Earth. Joining us now, Chris Mowry, Chief Executive Officer of General Fusion, which is based in Vancouver, uh, but is uh, joining us here at the uh, Bloomberg New Energy Finance uh, Future of Energy Global Summit. Chris, before we get into the nitty-gritty of the financing and the uh, potential what is nuclear fusion? Well, Lisa, it's great to be here this morning. Uh, fusion is the opposite of nuclear power. In nuclear power, you think about splitting heavy atoms like uranium. Fusion is all about putting together the lightest atoms. And for us, we put together two hydrogen atoms and make helium. And that is an incredibly powerful reaction. It's the most powerful reaction uh, that we know of. And uh, it's also incredibly clean. The, the, the fuel for fusion, for our version of fusion, comes from water. It comes from the hydrogen out of water. So there's basically an unlimited supply of this fuel that's available to everybody everywhere. If, uh, if Lisa were to go to uh, British Columbia, to Vancouver, and you were to show her your plasma injector, 
Can you describe what would it look like and what does it do? So plasma, let me start by just saying that that plasma, you can think of plasma as lightning. When when you look up in the sky uh, during a thunderstorm, you see a flash of light. Uh, That light is actually plasma. It is electricity uh, that has gone through the air and the atmosphere and heated that up so much that it stripped all the electrons off the protons of those atoms and made it glow. And that is, that's really what plasma is. And when you look at the sun, that's what you see. The, the sun is a burning ball of high temperature plasma. And so our plasma injector, which is, is like the fuel injector of a diesel engine, uh, it basically creates the starting point for a uh, fusion process. It creates this plasma. So it's a, it's a machine that's uh, six or seven feet in diameter, about 15 feet long, uh, where we put an incredible amount of electricity through just a very, very little bit of hydrogen gas, a couple of grams, and heat that up to about 5 million degrees. And that's kind of the starting point, if you will, uh, to creating fusion here on Earth. Okay, so to heat something up to 5 million degrees sounds like it takes a bit of energy itself. How do you, how do you source that energy to create this energy? Well, in a fusion plant, you have uh, recirculating energy, right? So uh, the good news about fusion, it just makes an incredible, when the fusion reaction happens, it makes an incredible amount of energy. And so you recirculate some of that back to start the next uh, reaction. Again, our machine is really analogous to a diesel engine. It's a pulse process that in a power plant will happen once a second. So basically, you'll create a plasma, inject it into our machine, and compress it actually pretty much just the way a diesel engine works until you reach fusion conditions, which is when you heat up this plasma to over 150 million degrees. And at that pressure and temperature, the helium, the hydrogen atoms actually burn and fuse together into helium and release an unbelievable amount of energy. And uh, so you just recirculate some of that to create new, uh, new plasma, but there's plenty of leftover to make clean electricity. You're looking perhaps to build an even bigger plasma injector, correct? Well, what we're doing, a plasma injector, again, going back to my analogy of a diesel engine, plasma injector is just one part of the overall engine. And so what General Fusion has done for the last 15 years is really develop all the systems of our fusion engine, if you will. And what we're getting ready to do now, which is really exciting, is to really build a demonstration fusion plant. Okay, And the purpose of this is to actually prove that we have the capability to make electricity out of fusion energy. It's not going to be a functioning power plant in the sense of putting uh, megawatts on the grid because actually the back end of our power plant is something that's completely conventional. We don't need to prove that. We're really kind of proving out on an integrated basis the fusion island, which is that the set of equipment that makes this plasma, compresses it, burns it, and turns it into electricity. That's the goal. And this will be done at scale. So uh, Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon, is an investor, is backing uh, General Fusion. Can you walk us through what has to happen for this to be adopted on some kind of mass scale? And also, how does it compare in cost to other types of uh, energy generators? So one of the exciting things about fusion, uh, at least I can certainly speak to General Fusion, is that when you evaluate 
uh, the projected cost of electricity, it's extremely competitive, uh, competitive with the future forecast of wind and solar. And of course, it's available 24-7. You know, we, we talk about it as on-demand or flexible energy, right? And so, whereas renewable, you need to complement it with something, whether it's energy storage or some form of flexible on-demand energy, um, in this case, it's something that in and of itself is uh, very uh, economically competitive, and, and that, that's a key piece of this thing. So for us, we are at the last stage of commercialization. So building this demonstration plant, uh, when it's up and running in the next several years, um, and it works the way we hope it works, we'll be ready for uh, commercial deployment. The next step will be a commercial reference plant that will actually put clean electrons on the grid. Well, thank you very much for joining us and uh, sharing this new technology with us. Chris Maurer is the chief executive of General Fusion, talking about the uh, the private sector bet on uh, using fusion technology to create electricity. Much appreciated. It is time to take a look at small and mid-cap shares. And, of course, uh, Dave Wilson, Bloomberg Stocks editor, columnist, and blogger at MLive Go on at the Bloomberg, joins us now. Risk on in small caps. Give us the details, please. Well, it sure looks that way, Lisa. I mean, uh, you see the Russell 2000 at the moment, a higher by 1.7%. Basically keeping pace with the S&P 500, which is up uh, about 1.8% at the moment. The Russell's biggest gain by far belongs to Verifone Systems, whose ticker is Pay, P-A-Y. The provider of credit card readers is up 52% after accepting a buyout offer from a group led by a private equity firm, Francisco Partners. The deal is valued at $3.4 billion with assumed debt. Spectrum Pharmaceuticals, ticker SPPI, has gained 25%. The drug developer gave a positive update on research into a proposed lung cancer treatment. And uh, King Group, ticker FRAC, has gained 9.5%. The provider of fracking services was raised to the equivalent of buy from hold at RBC Capital Markets. The Russell's steepest drop belongs to VTV Therapeutics, ticker VTVT. The drug developer has plunged 73.5% after a proposed Alzheimer's medicine failed in a final stage study. And Selecta Biosciences, ticker SELB, has fallen about 11.5%. The company released mid-stage data on the treatment for gout, and analysts expressed concern about the results on a conference call. Thank you very much, Dave Wilson, Bloomberg Stocks Commerce. Send Dave an email at dwilson at bloomberg.net and sign up for his daily free email newsletter. Sanctions against Russia, they have at least taken their toll on one proposed deal. This having to do with Glencore, the world's largest commodities trader. And here to tell us more is Tom Wilson, our mining and commodities reporter for Bloomberg News. He joins us from London. Uh, Tom, tell people exactly what was proposed between Glencore and uh, an aluminum uh, company that uh, they were going to have a share swap with, but that doesn't look to be uh, happening anytime soon. Exactly. So Glencore, the world's biggest commodity company, has a long history with uh, Oleg Deripaska, the sanctioned billionaire, and with one of his companies in particular, Russell. So it holds an 8.75% stake uh, in that business that it's had since about 2007. Now, Deripaska, back in the autumn, he decided he wanted to list a holding company called M Plus in London. 
And in order to do that, he approached his uh, good friend Ivan Glazenberg at Glencore and asked if Glencore would step in as a cornerstone investor by swapping its stake in Roussel for a stake in the newly created listed entity N+. Um, Glencore agreed that deal was going to happen by the end of April and now following the sanctions against Deripaska, Rusal and N Plus last week, Glencore confirmed this morning um, that that is suspended. You know, one thing that I'm struck by, Tom, is that there's been a broad-based withdrawal from, uh, frankly, everything having to do with Russia. But Rusal has been singularly punished since its oligarch head uh, was among those sanctioned. And I'm wondering, you know, can you talk about the effect of the sanctions on the supply chain of aluminum, for example, which is the specialty of Rusal, uh, or some of the other commodities that Russia supplies to Europe and the rest of the world? The main focus here at the moment really is on on, on aluminum or aluminium as, as we call it in London. <laughs> um, uh, Roussel is the world's biggest producer of aluminium outside of China, um, so it has a huge market share. Uh, and the way in which these sanctions work, they're basically designed to effectively cut Roussel off from the U.S. financial system, but the implications are far more reaching. And really, it means that you can no longer, as a U.S. business, and ultimately probably as now as a European business, as, as a European business will ultimately follow the direction of U.S. sanctions, you can no longer buy any aluminium um, from Roussel whatsoever. So that's seen, that's really sent the aluminium market into a bit of a spin. Aluminium's seen the biggest two-day gain uh, in more than six years. Um, Roussel lost half of its value on Monday and was down another 9% in trading today in Hong Kong. On the flip side, um, anybody that doesn't have Russian, Russian aluminium, so the Chinese aluminium producers um, are up. Uh, equally, anybody with exposure um, to U.S. aluminium producers, particularly following Trump's new tariffs on steel and aluminium. If you already have aluminium inside the U.S., people are willing to pay a big premium for it. Tom, the rest of the Russian economy is dominated by fossil fuel, particularly oil and natural gas. What effect have sanctions had on those businesses? So, no... No immediate lasting sanctions. I mean, we've seen, we've seen the ruble um, slip in value against almost every other currency in the last 48 hours. And certainly in London, speaking to investors here, there is a lot of kind of wider alarm and contagion effect um, at the moment. So people are concerned um, that uh, about almost doing any Russian business. Um, because if they're not on the sanctions list today, what's to say they might not appear on that list in due course? I think some of, some of that concern will probably ease off in, in the next few days, but it is certainly becoming um, a more and more risky jurisdiction to do business with the kind of specter of an ever-expanding U.S. sanction program in the background. So, Tom, when you talk to experts in the aluminium, how is that uh, field? Uh, I'm wondering, is there any sense that uh, there's some kind of downside surprise uh, for aluminium prices if, say, the sanctions are lifted or as people sort of parse the details and get the sense that this is, won't necessarily uh, break the supply chains that much? Okay, I, think, I think we have to expect some of that price value to come off um, in, in the next few weeks. But I mean, no one is really talking about these sanctions being lifted anytime soon. Um, so the, I mean, the potential consequences that we need to be aware of is in the past when Russian businessmen have been sanctioned by, by the U.S. or other foreign regimes, the Russian government has stepped in to provide some solutions or support. So uh, certain, I would guess that the Kremlin will be thinking now about creative solutions that it can potentially offer to Rusal to save part of that business. 
you know, can they re- can they repackage some of the aluminium production units under a different entity? Is there ways to circumvent sanctions there? But I also think that if you look at the breadth of the yeah. sanctions effort against Deripaska, eight of his businesses were targeted. So yeah. this isn't simply a warning to him. This is very much a blocking action. They are saying to Deripaska, yeah. no, your, your businesses are, are no longer welcome in the U.S. Welcome. You're no longer able to trade Tom, here. And so, Tom Wilson, thank you so much. Mining and Commodities Reporter for Bloomberg News. Unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.